This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. invite you to have a seat if you would, and you can open up your Bibles to the book of Acts if you have one with you, Acts chapter 19. We're <clears throat> going to finish the chapter this morning, picking up at verse 21, Acts chapter 19. Wish a good morning to you and welcome to any of you who are visiting with us today and maybe some of you who are connecting online for the first time. We've been making our way through the book of Acts and reflecting upon uh, how the church began to spread, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, reaching to the outermost parts of uh, the Roman Empire, and have been following especially the experiences of Paul in these last few chapters. You know, over the years, um, devotion uh, to Jesus, following Christ as your Savior and your Lord will have um, an impact on your relationships. And I know that for myself, <clears throat> devotion to Christ or to the gospel has cost me uh, the loss of many friends. Um, and I think that doubtless some of you have experienced that yourself, uh, friends or maybe even family. You know, most of the time, if I look back over the years, it's a, it's a quiet withdrawal, you know, sort of the, the phone calls sort of stop coming and, and the invitations decrease and eventually it just seems like the relationship's gone. But other times there has been what I might call a sudden explosion of hostility. It's very different than the quiet withdrawal. And it's clear that something had been building up in their hearts over time. And <clears throat> when you try to engage them to find out what the root cause is, inevitably, it ultimately leads to the fact that the gospel has unmasked some idol in their heart. And it's being threatened. They're feeling threatened. Uh, and not that they would understand it in that way, per se, or even say it that way. Uh, not at all. But something that they love supremely has been affected, has been threatened by the things you're saying about Jesus Christ. And you've hit a nerve here. The claims of Jesus are too much. There's something they love that they are not prepared to let go of in order to either believe in this Jesus that you've been talking about or follow him, let's say. Now, many of you, I think some 100 or so, were at a conference last weekend on idolatry or the idols of the heart. You may remember <clears throat> the definition that Brad used that an idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. <clears throat> That's speaking to a Christian, begins to capture. But people who have yet to come to faith in Jesus <laughs> have lived their whole lives captive to idols, you see. They just don't know it. <laughs> they don't realize it. And why is that? Because human beings have been created in the image of God to know God, to worship God, 
And when we rebelled and turned away from Him in the very beginning, we didn't stop being worshipers. We are hardwired to serve something or someone. And you may remember, and this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, it says, speaking of fallen humanity, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We never stop worshiping or serving someone or something. It's just part of what it means to be a human being. Um, what our text shows us this morning, verses 21 through 41, is a story. Luke recounts a story of a riot in the ancient city of Ephesus that was instigated by a silversmith, a man named Demetrius, uh, against Paul and against the young church that had been established there for some two to three years. And what we learn from this account today, what we learn today is that people will violently oppose the gospel because the gospel unmasks their idols and confronts their sin. But God can sovereignly protect his church, his people. We learn both of those things from this account. Now I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. And what Luke does here as he transitions, before he tells us that story, he tells us what Paul's plans were at this time. So reading now in verse 21 from Acts 19. Now after these events, those are the events we saw last week, which I'll touch on again shortly, Paul resolved in the Spirit, so in some way, the Holy Spirit impressed this upon Paul, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And so what Luke is doing for us in his narrative is he's setting before us Paul's design to get to Rome, and from here on, the book will trace this journey to Rome, and Paul will get there just not how he planned to get there. In verse 22, and, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And so this accounts for how did two years become three years? We know he stayed three years in Ephesus. He taught for those two years in the hall of Tyrannus, and then here we we're told there was more time. He stayed there for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. When Luke says no little, he means huge, right? A huge disturbance concerning the way, the way of Jesus, right? Following the Lord. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. <laughs> yeah, they're not. <laughs> and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. It's hard being Paul's friends. We've seen that a few times now. But what I want you to see here, and we'll stop just at this point, is, and we need to connect this with what happened earlier in this chapter, is that the transformed lives of believers, because that's really what this is about, can arouse hostility when it threatens the idols of others. Uh, what happened here? Demetrius argued that Paul's preaching threatened the wealth and the reputation of their trade, being silversmiths and other trades, and because he had, because he had persuaded many that these handmade gods aren't gods at all. Now, you'd think that would be most obvious to the guy making it, right? Hello. You bought this stuff and you made it. How can that be a god with power and so forth? But nevertheless, that was their thinking. And this is precisely what Paul had said at different places, such as in Athens, chapter 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Yes, yeah, so Paul has been saying this. And if all that Demetrius was reacting to was what he heard Paul had said, it wouldn't be that much of a problem. You see, it wouldn't be a threat. But what he was reacting to was the fact that what Paul is preaching, the gospel, has transformed people's lives, you see. It has changed people's hearts. It has brought sight into these blind hearts and they've come to realize that this is true that handmade gods are no gods at all you see and so they have abandoned in great numbers their idolatry and they are now worshiping and serving the true and the living God that's what's happened now remember what happened earlier in Ephesus this is the account we looked at last week that God created this profound sense of awe, the fear of God in both Jews and Gentiles when they learn that the spiritual realm is real, that the name of Jesus has power, and he's not some genie that you can manipulate. And that these Jewish exorcists whom they respected, remember, they thought highly of them, had absolutely no power. And so they saw all of this. And then what happened next? We were told, you look back in chapter 19 at verse 18, that the church was affected as well, not just unbelievers. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Remember, this was a great revival. God created a, a spirit of repentance in, in the hearts of all these believers simultaneously, and they admitted that they had one foot in the church, but they had still kept one foot with their occultic practices. And they brought out those magical uh, scrolls with spells on them and so forth, and they publicly burned them. <clears throat> so this was huge, right? This was very public. The theology of this is stated by Paul 
when he wrote to the church of Thessalonica. This was happening all throughout Asia Minor, and the church of Thessalonica was one just like that. <clears throat> in 1 Thessalonians, Paul would later write, and he, he speaks to them, and he says in verse 4, We know, brothers, loved, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. He says, I know that you were God's elect, that you were chosen. Why would you know that, Paul? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. He's saying, I know God chose you because when we came there and we preached the gospel, it wasn't just a lecture. When we came and we explained the gospel, God was there. Things happened. Uh, there was power uh, and the Holy Spirit was present. There was conviction both in preacher and in them. Why? What happened to them? Well, verse 6, they became imitators. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In verse 9, this is what he says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, there was the transformation. That's what Demetrius is having problems with. Uh, it's, it's what's happening in the lives of people who have come to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. If they had not been impacted, there wouldn't be much of a threat, right? Write what you want to write, say what you want to say. But, but when you start <clears throat> being different, when you start <clears throat> living different, it's going to get some people's attentions, you know. I remember back in... When I came to Christ some 40-plus years ago, um, you know, after some time, not immediately, after some time, the Lord began to show me that my love for all things music, though not sinful in itself, was way too important to me. That I was not deriving my sense of self-worth and my identity from Christ, but I was deriving it still from, from music, all that it had been to me, all, all my life, and eventually, he impressed that upon me, and so I started spending less money on LPs. <laughs> Those were vinyl things that <laughs> spun. <laughs> Albums. I started spending a lot less money on that. I started spending a lot less money on, on you know, guitar gear, musical gear, um, and on stereophile equipment, all this stuff, and I started actually giving some of it away uh, things that had been very valuable to be very important to me, to, to some of my friends. And they, frankly, they were offended. Because what I was implying by this was that, you know, what you value is really not that big a deal. I'll just give it away. Uh, and and they, they were offended. And with some of my friends that ran a, um, uh, a, a record store in Berkeley, rather ripped records, were we're getting upset. Why? Because I wasn't buying as much stuff anymore. Um, when, what you're, when, when what Christ has done in your life reflects, reflects upon others by virtue of the fact that your, your, your affections are changing and you'd begin discarding or devaluing, properly so, right, what they love more than anything you're probably going to get some reaction. And especially if it has economic consequences, especially if it affects their checkbook. 
Now, we've already seen this in the book of Acts in chapter 16. Remember when Paul cast the demon <coughs> out of that slave girl and he messed up the trade there and the commerce was affected. What happened? They got arrested and they were thrown in jail. And this is not only Paul's experience or Paul's way of viewing life. It's also the Apostle Peter's uh, teaching. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, these words. <clears throat> I'll begin reading right in 1 Peter 4 verse 1. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, meaning living the rest of your life in this body, no longer for human passions, those over passions, right, but for the will of God, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in, listen to this, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That was your past, he says. That time was sufficient. It's done. With respect to this, now here's the reaction. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised. <laughs> They're surprised. What's up with you? <laughs> what is this? Why are you getting rid of that? Why aren't you coming anymore? They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Uh, he's a Jesus freak or something now. Something's got into him. She's not coming to parties anymore. And we are to be reminded, verse 5, but they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So pity him, right? But you notice what Peter says there. Change lives, transform lives, moving in a different direction, turning 180 degrees the other way is going to result in some people taking notice of that, and some will malign you. They will criticize you. They'll turn on you. And this was what happening there. Now, Demetrius, this, um, this silversmith, his strongest motive, I, I, I propose to you, I offer you, was not religious. His strongest motive was not his love for Artemis, was his love of money. <laughs> the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, the Scriptures tell us. Um, and so that was the problem. His problem was greed. His problem was covetousness, which Paul in Ephesians, uh, writing to this very same church, in Ephesians 5 says, is idolatry. He says the same to the church at Colossae. Covetousness, that, that overbearing desire to have what someone else possesses. See? Um, and so I think he realizes that this crass personal motive, meaning I'm worried about my, <laughs> my money, uh, may not move the masses and get everyone going to stop this. And so he cloaks this thing behind something he believes will get their attention. And what will get their attention is the reputation of their world-known deity, Artemis, or Diana, also called Diana. And this brought, this brought wealth 
to everyone, because Ephesus was the center of the Artemis temple and, and the worship of, of Artemis. This affected everyone in one way or another, and it put them on the map, right? It's like when the Super Bowl comes to town, there's like a billion dollars involved in this. And the hotels and the restaurants, the taxis and everything, you see. And so Artemis, uh, uh, so Demetrius cloaks his selfish greed and covetousness in religious terminology. Uh, he knows this will get their attention. This uh, Artemis is what has put Ephesus on the map. And so he then roused, he roused up their patriotic, patriotic identity and their public identity, you see, as the great city of Artemis. Now, you have to appreciate just how big a deal this was. Um, Artemis of Ephesus was a local deity, yeah, but based upon this ugly black stone um, shaped like a multi-breasted woman, at least I'm told, <laughs> and believed to have fallen out of heaven. Some said that it was sent down by Zeus. Now, we don't have this stone, the original. Uh, some scholars believe it was a meteorite because... Uh, there are, uh, were other cases where this was the case. Something falls out of the sky. In their context, it has significance. And so there was this great statue <clears throat> built to Artemis in the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. And this temple, this temple was the largest building in the world at that time in Ephesus. The largest building in the world. It was as long I'll stick with my Super Bowl theme. It was as long as a football field. <laughs> Think about that. It was as long as a football field known as one of the seven archi uh, architectural wonders of the ancient world. Tremendous thing. Um, it was four times the size of the Parthenon. Four times. It was entirely made out of marble. Imagine that. <laughs> Uh, surrounded by 127 marble columns that were each 60 feet high. Okay. Uh, it was the center of the uh, Artemis worship and pageantry. There was an annual festival there, which was just, you know, filled with all kinds of stuff and practices. It was kind of like the first century Burning Man. There's this... They all came there. All this stuff was going on. <clears throat> and it was not only there, but this was spread throughout Asia Minor. And that's what he says. She's known and worshipped all throughout Asia Minor. Uh, and this, there were many festivals held everywhere, and it even reached the great city of, of Rome, the capital of the empire. Now, these little silver shrines that says that Artemis was making, that uh, Demetrius was making, uh, were like... They made both many replicas of the statue of Artemis, you know, the figure of the woman, and they also made many replicas of the temple. Uh, and those were the many shrines, and they made them out of terracotta and other things. And, but, but Demetrius and his friends were making them out of silver. Many, many of these have been found uh, throughout the Mediterranean in archaeology, the terracotta. We haven't found any of the silver ones. That's probably because they were melted down and turned into something else, you know. Um, 
but they were everywhere. You know, what, what I want you to picture is like you, somebody visits San Francisco, you take them to go see the Golden Gate Bridge, and they buy one of those little things that looks like the Golden Gate Bridge, right? And they take that little thing home, right? Or when you go to Italy, you get a little mini tower, leaning tower of Pisa, right? Um, or, and you take those home. And you and I, what you and I call souvenirs, they call gods, and they put them in their homes. They built little shrines, and they put those up. They would set them up. They would lay flowers in front of them. They'd touch them on the way in and out when they go to their home. They bow down to them. They pray to them, and so forth. And this was spreading all throughout the ancient world. And so this was big business, you understand. And Demetrius was making the more expensive ones, right, the silver ones. And so it wasn't their love for Artemis so much that they were worried about. It was the commerce and their, their economic impact upon them. Their, their checkbook, their bank account was being affected. And so this great, this great uh, riot is ensued. And now what we're going to see in the rest of the account is that though this is the case, right? Though it is the case that the gospel <clears throat> seen in your transformed lives can arouse hostility because Idols are unmasked. Nevertheless, God is in control. Luke's showing us how the church spread despite all these things, and he can sovereignly protect his church. Right? So let's read the rest of the account there. So at verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This picture, this college football game, right? And everyone is just screaming the same chant. Over and over, these people were screaming this. And so the city was filled with the confusion. And they all rushed together into the theater. This theater sat some 24,000 people maximum, dragging with them <laughs> Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Oh, it pays to have bodyguards, huh? Poor guys. So they are getting drug in there. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> Where is he? I'll kill him. Who is he? What's going on? <laughs> Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Again, picture that, huh? You know, the red tide or something. This college crowd screaming over and over. But two hours, folks. Two hours. And, but things changed suddenly. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Man of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? <laughs> Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. He's saying these are obvious facts. Don't worry about people undoing what's obvious to all of us. For you have brought these men who are neither sacrilegious, that really means temple robbers, 
uh, nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Obviously, this was a very irregular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. I'll stop there. So think about this now. That's the sovereign hand of God protecting Paul and his, and his companions. And it's, it's interesting how it all happens. Demetrius succeeded in getting this whole city in an uproar, right? You notice it said there that it was a great commotion. They, they come down this main street that leads right into this theater. There are two theaters in Ephesus, but this is probably the larger one who, that estimates sat some 24,000 people. But note that the city was filled with confusion, right? Not everyone knew what was going on. Some people were saying one thing. Other people were saying another and it reminds you, it reminds me of the riots and the uprisings of 2020, right? What you do is you get one little slogan here, one slogan there, one, one, uh, one statement here, and pretty soon you have all kinds of different parties excited and exacerbated, and, and it's all really about different things, and there's not one real uniting sort of thing in what is being said. But there's this sense of rage because you've touched on nationalistic pride. You've touched on ethnic pride. You've touched on, re, touched on religious liberty. You've touched on this, this, and that. One group is saying this. One group saying that. Before you know it, what's going on? That's what 2020 felt like. Just commotion. And you ask yourself, as you look at what happened in Ephesus, okay, I get it. But was there... Was there anything deeper truly going on? Was there something behind this riot? Ultimately, yes. Yes, because this is a book that's tracing the, the power of the gospel and how the church was built, you see. And what was going on was a spiritual battle between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness. This was a spiritual battle to which Paul would refer to later even as he writes to the Ephesians. What it was, it was a spiritual battle sparked by economic consequences, but it was framed as a religious problem with political implications. What a mess, huh? But what was, that's why it riled up everyone. But what was really behind it all? was the forces of darkness had felt the impact of verses 18 and 19 when massive crowds of people are burning their little occultic books and saying in public, we've had enough of this. We repent of our sin and we follow Christ with whole, with whole hearts, you see. In other words, they felt the impact of the gospel and the forces of darkness was beginning to react. And it's interesting that it was happening right near the end of, of this great three-year ministry in Ephesus. And Paul had seen a whole lot. Nothing would discourage you more, I think, if you were Paul, after all the places you've been and what you've seen, to have been allowed to see this much fruit, to have been allowed to spend this much time, 
And then right before you're going to go, and you're telling everyone, I'm going to hit Rome now, guys, uh, what you see is this whole thing sort of blow up. Remember, the discouragement's a powerful tool of the enemy. Paul would later write to that church, and I'm sure they would think back, and they could picture what you and I can only now begin to picture. When Paul says to them in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Demetrius is not our ultimate problem, nor enemy per se. And they would picture that, what happened on that day. But against the rulers, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, the, the spiritual realms that we cannot see. He says, that's who we are wrestling against. And you understand, these people, the Ephesians, the Colossians, and so forth, they were dominated. They lived in abject fear of these spirits in the spirit world. And that's why they used the occult so much. That's why they had these, these uh, exorcists and those who would, the, the magicians who would use these incantations and so forth. They lived in abject fear of these spirit beings. And Paul says, there is a reality behind these things. That's who we are wrestling with. But you need to be strong in the Lord. Think back at what happened there, you see. You've seen the power of the kingdom of God. And it freed you from these false idolatries, false, uh, false gods, and so forth. And so what Luke does here records, not every detail, but he records three very interesting events here about this riot that I think should get our attention. In each of them, we see how the invisible hand of God was at work protecting his church on that fateful day when it all seemed to blow up, right? First of all, when Paul wanted to take his friend's place, um, Gaius and, and Aristarchus, and he said, I want to go in there and speak, you know. Uh, he, he was willing to do this. He was wisely prevented doing so by his disciples, and we would expect that, that his disciples would say, Paul, don't go. Disciples of Jesus, those who he's been discipling. But verse 31 says something else, or says something more. It says, even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, encouraged them not to go into the, into the arena, into the amphitheater. Who were these Asiarchs? The Asiarchs were, I know maybe you have footnotes that say they were high-ranking officials, but you need to understand more. They were priests, priests of the imperial cult in Asia. What's the imperial cult? Emperor worship. And they were priests of the, of the imperial cult in Asia. They were members of an elite group of people who had been making major donations to the temple of Artemis. So they were wealthy, you know, um, high society people. What we would call today, maybe we'd call them patron of the arts or patrons of, uh, of, of education and so forth. But of course, it was all in the occult, right? Having to do with the idolatries of their day. And so they gave a lot of money for public good. And they were given authority over the temple precincts and the temple worship, which was an entire system. That temple was so wealthy that they were giving out loans, it was very wealthy, a lot of power, a lot of money involved there, a lot of influence. 
But the interesting thing is, why were these guys Paul's friends? You see. What is happening here? You know, the priests had not risen up against what Paul was saying. The silversmith did. It was an economic idol that was driving all this. And here are these guys, and they're not responding the way we'd expect them. But we're not told, right? We're not told, but it's easy to imagine a few things. First of all, surely the healing miracles that we just read in this chapter associated with Paul had reached their ears. They, they understood. There's something about this guy. <laughs> and th these kinds of people wanted to be associated with anything like that, right? It doesn't mean they had an understanding of what it means to know the name of Jesus, believe in the name of Jesus, but this stuff was real, <laughs> and it was powerful. And if you're going to be an important figure in this city, you want to have friends like that, right? So uh, maybe that was part of what was happening here. But I think something else we ought to appreciate, we should also appreciate that somehow Paul found ways, and I say this because of what he writes later and how he teaches believers like you and me. Paul found ways to preach Christ, to speak of, of the gospel, to preach good news without needlessly offending everyone, without purposefully cutting off everyone and burning every single bridge along the way. He found ways to preach Christ in a way that was winsome, that was gracious, that even people of high positions would respect him. He may not even have spoken against Artemis per se and simply spoken about God's made with hands, you know. And he said, I'll let you think about what I'm talking about. <laughs> he found a way to communicate without cutting off and burning down bridges, something that many a Christian has to learn better. <laughs> and you're going to have to learn better in our day and age because there's like gasoline poured on the culture you bring a little match and it's just gonna go aflame on you instantaneously there are ways to communicate the love of christ the good news without needlessly cutting off people and offending them it's a reminder it should be isn't it of how the lord jesus ministered and just to mention one aspect of how our Lord ministered is that he was willing to eat with outcasts, sit down with tax collectors and sinners. Um, and this offended the religious. He didn't do that because he was hungry. He did that for the sake of his mission to bring the healing to the sick. It's not the healthy, right, that need the doctor. And they listened to him, we're told, in the Gospels. Because why? He was preaching to them the good news about the kingdom. Can we do that? We're going to have to do that, you see. To preach the gospel, which has bad news for sinners, but its emphasis is the good news of the kingdom of God and salvation and forgiveness of sins and eternal life with 
our Creator, and so forth. Well, Paul found a way to do that, just like our Lord found a way. We are, as you know, the saying goes, to be in the world but not be of the world. And we are free, and we all ought to have friends who are in the world and friends who are still of the world without needlessly breaking off every contact, needlessly destroying every opportunity by virtue of how you carry yourself. So, Seek God's grace to be tender and be able to communicate like that. Paul would say <clears throat> similar things to the church at Ephesus, that they are to speak truth but do so in love and so forth. But to the church at Colossae, he put it this way. He says, walk in wisdom, Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. Always be gracious. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Think before you blab. Reflect, pray, remember what's at stake here. Build those bridges, you know. Okay. Just got my hair cut recently. I'm not bragging <laughs> <laughs> that I still have hair. <laughs> uh, I've, I've shared before, if it's been many years, I go to the same person for that same say, the sake of the bridge and conversations. And he told me just yesterday, I want to go to your father's memorial service. And he, he never met my dad, and he knows what we're going to say. He says, I want to go. I said, good, I'll let you know. So the first thing that he records again is that, that is very interesting, how Paul had managed to have friends in high places who were not necessarily believers, had not cut off all these Opportunities. Secondly, the second thing, interesting event is how the Jews put forward a man named Alexander in the middle of this crowd. Get up there, Alexander, you talk, you know. And we're not told exactly, but you can imagine this, that, that, that Alexander was probably going to say, hey, whatever it is, it ain't us, okay? What, what am I talking about? We have no inclination that he was among the believers here, the way the contrast is made, disciples, Jews, disciples, Jews. The idea here is probably that Whatever's going on, we Jews aren't the cause of it, you see. And they haven't been helpful to Paul's preaching and his cause up to this point. And that probably would have drawn more ire towards them or something. But in this desire maybe to distance themselves from Paul, the Lord just overturns that. He's just shouted down. And people say, it's a Jew. And they start screaming all the louder. And they go for two hours. <laughs> That's the providential hand of God, especially if what, Whatever he would have said would have put the, the laser beam more on these two men and upon Paul. But the Lord doesn't let that happen, you see. And you would think it's getting worse, though, because it's getting loud and nonsensical for two hours. And then the third event that Luke records really, I think, shows the gracious, sovereign mercy of God and his protective hand over the church, over, over the, the gospel, and over the mission when the city clerk stands up, verse 35, town clerk somehow managed to quiet the crowd. Now, maybe they were just exhausted after screaming for two hours, and they said, there's a good reason to take a break. <laughs> the city clerk was an official. Uh, he was the magistrate of the city council, and maybe we would call him the mayor today, and he 
motions with his hands. He successfully calms everyone down. Remember, this is an amphitheater. It's, it seats around like this, and they were designed to have a great acoustics. He was down at the bottom, got everyone's attention. He's the same man who's there on official meetings, so they know who he is, right? And they, they're all, okay, hush, take a break. The mayor's here. Okay. And so he gets up, he quiets everyone down, and he denounces Demetrius and his friends and reminds everyone of the appropriate legal channels for action against Paul. If you have a complaint, he tells them they are the ones that are in danger here of violating the law. And the way Luke writes in verse 27, he uses the word danger. And there is danger, that's Demetrius talking, not only in this trait of ours that may become into disrepute, and he uses the same word in verse 40, we really are in danger. Demetrius said, our craft is in danger. And the Lord spins it around, has the mayor stand up and say, we're the ones in danger if we don't stop this. Because we are being, we're getting close to being uh, considered a riot. And you have to understand what's happening historically at that time. Remember, the Jews have already been kicked out of Rome because of riots and so forth. And uh, historians tell us that they were moving more and more away from democratic principles in some of those outlying areas and so forth. And these people don't want to be considered rioters and bring more of Roman authority down on them and squelching more and more of their liberties. And so he says, we're the ones in danger here. If you all don't quiet down, you just go home and use legal channels to deal with your problems. Um, that's tremendous. Now, Luke leaves out a whole lot, obviously, about everything that happened in Ephesus. This is three years, and we only have glimpses here. Um, <clears throat> but remember, when you are writing a narrative like this, and he's wanting to report something to Theophilus and to his first century readers and us, what he does put in is what is there for emphasis to and what he does, there are three things here. He shows us, what he shows us are three primary things. And the way he has written this, okay, the way he has written this narrative, he shows us three primary things right here. He shows us, Theophilus and us once again, that Paul and the church are not insurrectionists. That they are never, throughout this whole thing, the narrative acts, never the direct causes of these riots. Indirectly, yes. But Paul never calls for riots. Paul never organizes riots. The church doesn't break him out of prison <laughs> at gunpoint. Right? God sends earthquakes. <laughs> the church is not responsible for what the Jews were worried about and what they already experienced in Rome, right? That Christianity was becoming more and more a religion that needed to be understood as being legal and law-abiding within the Roman Empire system. Everywhere Paul goes, there seems to be a riot. <laughs> but let's be clear, and, and Luke wants to make it clear, right? You can imagine being in, somewhere in the first century. Somebody brings up Paul. You're going somewhere. You're trying to hear about Christians. And wh what are they going to say? Did, isn't that the guy who started the riot at Ephesus? No, he didn't start the riot at Ephesus. They rioted because of, of Demetrius and so forth. 
He didn't organize some picket in front of the temple of Artemis. It was, it was a reaction from the darkness that used people in authority and influence. But guess who also has his finger on people of authority <laughs> and influence? And more so than the prince of darkness, Grim, the Lord. And so the second thing he underscores, these last and third are very important. The power of the church is primarily spiritual, not political. And how Luke, how Luke writes the book of Acts, he makes this very, very clear. That's how the church spread. God uses agents we, just, we don't expect. He, believers, what happened were believers re- demonstrated the power of the gospel in their lives and peop- through their public repentance, their changed lives were dramatic, and this is what created the great reaction. But our, our power to bring about change in our surrounding society it's primarily spiritual, right? Not political or economic. There are times that are appropriate to use the political sphere when it suits the moment and in a way that is appropriate. And Paul will very soon appeal to Rome and appeal to Caesar. In other words, he will use the system in a right way. But our, our mission isn't to overturn it, per se. The power of the gospel and the church is spiritual. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, who many think Paul wrote while he was in Ephesus and had already suffered greatly, he says, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, Verse 3, I'll start there. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. Theos dunamis. God, divine power to destroy strongholds. What are the strongholds, the fortresses that we destroy with divine power? We destroy arguments, logismas, false logic, false reasoning. We would say false worldviews, false philosophies of life. We destroy those and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Our weapon is truth, you see. Spiritual truth which has divine power, which undoes false worldviews when people come to an end in themselves and realize it was, it was useless. It was nothing. But look at them. Oh, how they love each other. And so forth. He says, that's our, that's our source of power. And thirdly, what Luke records, what he emphasizes and shows us in this account, how he writes is that God can sovereignly protect this church using even unbelieving agents. Using the unexpected, the Asiarchs, the city clerk, the mayor. Hasn't it always been that way? 
Cyrus, my servant, says the Lord. Remember what Paul says in Romans 13. There's no authorities in power except those whom God's put in power. For such a day as he wants to work through them in ways you and I wouldn't have planned or wouldn't have expected, you know. And so what, what can we learn from that? Well, this is why we pray for those in power. Because God put them there. This is why we pray for their salvation, first of all. But we also pray that God would give them uh, a, a way of making decisions, a way of seeing things. Maybe even unwittingly make decisions that are serving the greater purposes of the gospel. And that's why we do what we do, and we pray for whom we pray and how we do it. And so Luke records what he records to stress these three points right here at the end. The church is not directly responsible for any of these riots, all this civic unrest. Secondly, the power of the church is primarily spiritual, not political. And lastly, God can sovereignly protect this church through unbelieving agents should he choose to do so. Now, it turns out that, you know, Paul was there three years and Luke hasn't given us everything that's there, but many scholars agree that he wrote at least some of the prison epistles from Ephesus. That is to say that he was imprisoned while in Ephesus, though Luke in Acts does not record it. There's disagreement as to how many of those letters he would have written from an imprisonment in Ephesus and so forth, but there's an agreement that he wrote at least some and when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he speaks of battling against wild beasts in Ephesus. He didn't mean that literally, but metaphorically he was talking about a great struggle that he faced while he was in Ephesus. When he writes to, to the church at Philippi, his future's uncertain. He doesn't know what's going on. Some think he may have been in prison in, in Ephesus then and so forth. When he writes 2 Corinthians, it's clear he went back and forth. He, he went back and forth with the Corinthians while he was in Ephesus. But he may even be referring in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to the great time of where he despaired of life itself that may have happened at Ephesus. We do not know for sure. So it wasn't all simple or painless in Ephesus. And at least Luke helps us see right before Paul uh, designed to leave for Rome, things got really bad for them. Beloved, people will violently oppose the gospel because the gospel unmasks the idols of their heart. Part of that is unmasking is the, is the evidence of your transformed life. That's part of the unmasking. Jesus changes everything. And when he changes you, that gets people's attention. Where is the Lord taking us in our time? I do not know. I don't think we're necessarily near a time when we're all going to be drugged into the middle of stadiums, you know, filled with chanting fans and torn limb from limb. But it sure happened not much longer after this in their time in the first century. You know. And the more, the more our culture moves away from the truth of God, the more the gospel message will quickly unmask their idolatries and your changed life will be so different by virtue of how it's all going and many of you are already feeling it in your places of employment, your schools, your neighborhood, you're, you're feeling it even in your family members. Why is it you don't accept this? Why are you so harsh? Why do you keep saying no to this? Don't you see the way the culture's going? The more and more we're going to experience this and some will violently oppose you. 
But God can sovereignly protect His people. And God can sovereignly allow us to suffer and still build His church. And what was all behind this, again, was transformed lives. And I hope that your values have changed such, your, your desires have changed such, the direction of your life has changed so dramatically, how you use your wealth has changed so dramatically, your speech has changed so dramatically, and is progressively becoming more Christ-like, so much so that it's rousing the attention of others. I hope so, because Jesus came not only that we might be justified and forgiven and have a ticket to heaven, but he came to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to transform us into people who love him and look like him. And they crucified him. So we understand that we should expect it. Has anything in your life ever given clear indication that you serve a different master? than the world. That you follow a different set of values than the world. Has this ever bothered anyone? What was Paul's question at the beginning of this chapter? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? <laughs> if it has, rejoice. And if not, why not? Let's pray.